0: I'm Brian Fierst.
1: And I'm Rebecca Cahoe, and you're listening to Rural Roots.
0: A uh, Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century?
1: As always, we're here at CHMR Campus Radio, located in St. John's at Memorial University of Newfoundland, here in Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: And this is episode 15 in season 2, so it should be our last episode, but. We are going to make this a 16-episode series. Ooh, how come? Uh, Well, I'm waiting on a couple more interviews for the part two of the National Parks episode.
1: Right, the one that we did uh, two episodes back.
0: Two episodes back. And then I kind of uh, lucked out uh, with this uh, set of amazing stories I have to share.
1: Yeah, so that's one of the benefits of recording here at Memorial University Lots of interesting events come our way. And so in the last several weeks, you've been at the Annual Society of Rural Physicians of Canada Conference.
0: Yes. And it was incredible, actually. I have so many really fantastic stories. And I think we are going to focus a good chunk of Season 3 around health issues.
1: Yeah, and that can be pr- quite broad, really. When we're talking about rural health, it's mm. not just, uh, you know, the normal GP kind of practice stuff. So much of the healthcare is wound up in the idea of wellness, and you get into, like, the indicators of health and all of that, and it's just so broad.
0: And, and it, we are going to talk about, really, all sorts of things. But in this episode, uh, the story I want to share it today, I think it's going to be applicable to many other professionals, Right. Um, who live in rural communities uh, we are going to talk about doctors today but you know it could probably apply to accountants and um, a whole bunch of other people so
1: so wh- what are we going to talk about <laughs>
0: <laughs> We are really not on the ball here uh, We are going to hear from four rural and small town doctors in Ontario who found themselves professionally and to some extent personally, Feeling isolated and lonely, right? And decided to do something about.
1: It. Yeah, it can be hard being the only family doctor in a small community. I'm sure. Yeah,
0: and in so many ways, right? Um, so these four friends formed a little support group uh, for themselves. And I caught up with them a couple of weeks ago at the St. John's Convention Center, where they were teaching a workshop on how to create such. Um, support groups.
1: Right. It's so interesting because uh, I know just in my personal experience, when I think about the health professionals in the small area where I grew up, most of them weren't people who had lived there for a long time. Uh, a lot of, In a lot of cases, it was people with few links to that town coming in because they were professionals who were needed. So it's a really different kind of experience of small town life mm-hmm. when you're coming in.
0: Yeah. And they'll talk about that. And they'll also talk about the experience of being a physician who knows a lot of very private information yeah. and has a patient-physician privilege. So how do you form friendship right. in a community that you know sorts of things about?
1: Right. You're kind of immediately thrust right into the middle of things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we anyone who <laughs> lives in a small town knows how much uh, backstory and understanding where people are coming from, how much that comes into play. So to just have to jump in, and be right in the middle of it i can imagine it's really challenging
0: yeah. so here's what i think we're going to do okay it was a really good conversation uh, it was supposed to be an interview with one person she said hey can i bring my three friends right. and i said sure and we just had this great conversation Perfect. so i think i'm just going to play the whole thing for you it's going to be about half an hour or so
1: great so that's the plan is there anything else i need to know
0: Actually, there are a couple of things uh, I'd like you to know. One is a very simple thing. Uh, During the conversation, one of the physicians is going to mention something called Rural Roadmap. So Rural Roadmap is an overarching document that has been recently adopted and that is looking at how we can improve every aspect of rural medicine in Canada. Right. And we are going to do a whole episode in Season 3 on Rural Roadmap. Great. So the second thing I do need you to know about, uh, and I really want our listeners to be aware of it as well, is that we are going to talk about some very, very difficult situations that arise in a general physician practice in a small rural town. Right. So we are going to talk. There's going to be a conversation about um, a stillbirth and the death of a mother. And there's going to be um, a conversation about the loss of a child. Okay. So I just want you to be prepared.
1: Yeah, and if listeners feel like that's something that uh, they don't want to listen to right now, um, now would be the time to turn off uh, yeah. the podcast and please come back next week.
0: Yeah, and uh, it is towards the end of the conversation, so okay. like if you want to hear the beginning, that's, yeah. that's fine. All so here is that conversation. And I think I'm going to start with the introductions
2: of those four doctors. Sure. This
0: and just tell me your name Practices.
2: I'm Dr. Elaine Blau. I work in Tobermory, Ontario and Lionshead, Ontario. Uh, twin cities for medical reasons. We have two clinics and a hospital, an emergency room. We all do palliative care and inpatient care, office, long-term care, um, home care as well. We live in a small, small place in southern Ontario. Our population of our town is 700. So we are rural generalists in our community by need, but also by intent.
3: Uh, I'm Kate Miller, and I'm what Elaine refers to as a urban family doctor. I had 16 years in full-time rural practice, and then for family reasons, moved to the city. Um, but small city, and also uh, couldn't give up being a rural doctor. So I spend a portion of my professional life in the city doing family practice, hospital care, and obstetrics. Um, but then at least once a week, commute out to a rural community to provide rural eMERGE. Um, and my passion actually is a birth close to home and the preservation of rural maternity services. And even though I am no longer living and working full-time in rural Canada, that's actually probably where uh, I make the biggest noise.
4: And I'm Dr. Rochelle Dworkin. I've been in a rural community called Hanover, Ontario for the last 32 years. And I am retiring from family medicine the end of June, but still keeping some rural work up. By taking, I took on a, a course in dermatology, so I'm going to be pro- provide rural dermatology services to a couple communities. My passion has also been obstetrics for the last 32 years um, and also very important to provide maternity care close close to home, and I hope to continue doing some research in that area in my retirement. I'm Dr. Marilee Brown. I work in Port Perry,
5: Ontario, a town of about 10,000, so huge by some of these standards. Um, but have been there for the past 20 some odd years, delivering babies, doing emergency room work, uh, working in our walking clinic, assisting at surgery, taking care of inpatients, so uh, and consultative palliative care as well. So, uh, in addition to those duties, we are all teachers of uh, family medicine. Uh, and rural family medicine, specifically at uh, some of the different medical schools in
4: Ontario.
0: So, how did you meet, and who's going to tell me that story first? Well,
4: I, I actually did that story as part of our presentation, so I'll tell you the story. Elaine and I actually used to work very close to each other, and we met each other actually through a rural a curling bonds bill, and over the years, we got we individually all became involved in the SRPC, the Society of Rural Physicians in Canada. And, and Elaine and I started going out to the conferences together and sharing a room. And on our way out to the Whistler Conference, Kate just happened to be on our bus on the way from Vancouver up to Whistler. And we were blah, 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 blah talking the whole way up and, and really had a lot of fun um, on that bus. And then we've also known Mary Lee through rural education. Mary Lee used to, at these conferences used to run um, the Rural Educators Forum. And um, we were all going to this, an awards dinner, and um, Kate and Mary Lee were going, and Elaine and I were going, I, but I believe that Mary Lee stood Kate up and sat at a different table. So <laughs> at the end of the night, we all sort of met up together, and we started talking, and, and we And we haven't just, stopped. And we haven't stopped, <laughs> yeah. So we went off to the hot tub together with a, and had a lot of fun and lots of laughs at that conference, and, and we've just stayed friends ever since. And that
2: was six years ago. Can I add that one of the things we talked about at that that venue at the very end was, Do any of you ever get a little bit lonely at conferences? So a lot of us are coming from our individual small towns, to this big conference, very exciting, lots to do. There's also downtimes here and there in between, you know, going to lunch with somebody that you know or having breakfast first thing in the morning all of us were going back to our individual hotel rooms and not necessarily having someone to debrief with afterwards and so that was the kind of the beginning of well we could go to conferences together and then we knit together ways to do that so.
0: so how do you help each other
2: I'll start. Um, I mean, the list is, yeah,
3: the list is huge. Um, I think. I mean, even in you heard in our introductions that there are many things that we do that are similar to each other, um, although we have lots of differences as well. Um, and we all work in good medical staff. Some of them smaller, some of them bigger. I mean, Mary Lee's Community has thirty family physicians, but even within a group of rural family physicians resident in the same place, it's hard to find someone who has the same set of interests or or skills. So we are all. T- teachers. We are all mothers. We are all daughters. We are all wives, as well as being rural generalists. We all have done obstetrics at some point in our career. And so finding someone else who has all of those pieces, that almost any problem that comes up in my life that I need to bounce off of somebody, these are the three women I'm going to do it with because they might be the only three women that I have a connection with that understand every piece of it and how they overlap with each other and why an issue with my spouse might also be an issue about my work or my kids or my teaching because our lives aren't in little silos just like our clinical practice isn't in little silos.
5: I think one of the things that drew us together too was the fact that even within our own medical communities our generalism is becoming less common. Like when I first started in my community 20 years ago everyone did everything and very slowly uh it's evolved so that people have evolved areas of interest or areas that they just didn't feel that they wanted to do or couldn't do for whatever reason and so for those of us who are maybe the dinosaurs of the profession still Mm. still doing you know delivering babies and doing emergency work I'm down in my community now to be the only physician who delivers delivers babies and does emergency room work. And so even within my my medical community, there's this sort of sense of isolation because there are fewer and
4: fewer people who understand what I do.
0: How did that happen? How did we get there?
4: Oh, the million-dollar question. That is a very good question. We like to think of it, and, and with no offense to our urban colleagues, as a bit of an urban creep that it, you can go to a small town now and say, well, I don't want to do eMERGE. I'm going to stay in my office. And because we are so desperate for new physicians to come to the communities, we are we are willing to make exceptions. When I first started in Hanover in 1986, um, there was no option. You had to do obstetrics. You had to do eMERGE. Everybody was doing it. And, and just creepingly over the years are saying, well, but I don't like to do it. I don't want to do it. And once one person decides not to do something, then it opens the door for everybody else to also leave aspects of generalism that, um, that they don't want to do. Yeah.
3: And I think also we're teaching
4: new doctors to be afraid. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about
3: as teachers of rural medicine, of general Generalism is is being uncomfortable with the unknown, being doing that un, that uncomfortable procedure because you haven't done it in 20 years. But today this guy needs a chest tube. You're just going to have to put it in. Um, that uncertainty that we live with all the time is not something that's well taught. What's taught is get that test that gives you the definite answer so you know what you're doing. Um, and so where we teach and how we teach does not prepare a lot of new grads for what we actually do, which is I think part of the drive to teach them more where we are and doing and what we're doing Um, but new grads are not brave in the way that someone like Rochelle who only had one year post-medical school training and just went and did it all and and did it well and did it for a long time.
0: So something happens and you want to get in touch with one of your friends you're quite far apart geographically how do you do that?
2: So we, we have a very lively text group that has a name and has its own little ring on my phone anyway. <laughs> um, we have it set up so that it doesn't ping after 10 p.m. or before 7 a.m. so that we can send people messages any time of the day. And I suspect my friends know how to get hold of me in those wee hours of the morning too, if they really, really needed to. But um, we can send anywhere from 10 messages a day up to 200, depending on uh, each other's lives. There may be a, you know, a more sort of critical event happening with one of us, either at work or at home. Um, and uh, it often will have messages from all parts of our lives within a day. So there's, and there's always quick support there. Sometimes there's a case at work. Um, obviously we we respect privacy and be sure that we don't put anything that would would identify anyone in that message. But um, it allows me to get some quick advice about best practices, you know, in an area that I know that Kater Marrily are a little bit more familiar than I am or a difficult case that all of us would struggle with. We can put all four of our minds together. So my patients sometimes get four consults in one and they just don't always be they're not always aware of that. I think being apart actually has a benefit too though. So we use
3: technology to get around the difficulties of conversing. But sometimes it's really nice, particularly if it's local medical political issues, mm-hmm. to have somebody in a different community. Or if you know if one of us is thinking about changing what we do, to discuss that with our local colleagues is threatening to them. By the way, I'm thinking of dropping a merge is not is going to create a local panic, but I can say it to these three. It's not going to affect their lives, so I can get feedback I can get a little more nuanced of a look a more objective look at it than if I had that conversation locally so I don't even if we all lived in the same city which I think would have some benefits but I think would have some huge drawbacks for us too our distance is sometimes really helpful but we're not super far apart And that helps, too, because we are close enough that we can physically come together. And I think that's important to us, that we have some face-to-face, some deeper relationship building that you can't do through text. And it's why, through text, we can talk in ways and understand each other in ways that we wouldn't if that was the only basis of our relationship.
5: Our call schedules are more of an impediment than our geography. That when we are trying to get together, trying to find four women who have busy lives, children you know, activities in addition to multiple call schedules, it's very challenging for us to get together face to face. Now, we generally get together at least twice a year for specific conferences, the Society of rural Physicians, Physicians Conference and often the Family Medicine Forum, the National Family Medicine Conference. But beyond that, you know we are looking to try to get together sometime in the summertime and I think we came up with one possible September weekend that we might be able to if someone can switch their call because there's just so much um, complexity to our call schedules and again the, the wonderful thing about these women is that they live my life so they recognize that that doesn't mean that I'm not prioritizing them or that I don't care about them it just is the complexity of our lives.
0: How long did it take you to build this little network?
4: Day. A, a day a day <laughs> and into, a night and
3: 20 years right yeah. I mean I think the, the pieces were happening we all had relationships with each other independent of the four of us before we gelled as a, a four and I think we talked about this because we did a talk here at the conference on it we talked about you know do we really even remember that first six months what happened after that yeah. dinner together mm-hmm. where we sort of clicked and none of us really do so I I think it happened rather organically we met at an conference six months later and I think from there it's just been it's
4: skyrocketed um, but we were sharing um, either getting hotel rooms separately and we thought well, it's just as cheap for us to get a two-bedroom suite, so we ended up at the Empress Hotel in their two-bedroom, you know, royal suite at, a, at the, one of the next conferences, and it was such a delight. I think, I think sharing those hotel rooms together really, really helped mm-hmm. a lot. We had lots of giggles and lots of fun being able to just hang out together. Um, And that certainly was something that I think that helped. But for sure, technology has been a big part of the reason why we can stay so close. I think
5: we have a lot of great traditions as well that we adopted very early on. I mean, at our workshop, we actually served champagne because that's something we always do when we get together. Now, I do like to to note that when we're together, we're not on call, so it's actually okay (laughs) for us to have a glass of champagne. We also have team T-shirts, uh, Elaine is modeling one now that has an uprise fist saying generalists unite um, and Kate is modeling one that has a superhero with a flaming uh, emblem with a flaming H on it for for a name that we're not actually going to use <laughs> which will remain nameless but it's is vaguely unprofessional so we're not actually going to uh, say that one on air Just but it's a cute team name that's all so. But the point was that very quickly we adopted these things that we do together. You know, we we always have fantastic cheese, we always go out for dinner, we love to go hiking, we share pictures of our children and our our dogs. We've even occasionally gotten our whole families together. It's been a good thing for our group, I think, that our husbands seem to get along. None of our husbands are medical, which is actually unusual Mm -hmm. that uh, many... Female family physicians have husbands who or partners who are also in medicine. And for us, all of, our, all of our spouses are non-medical. And that adds extra dimensions to our relationship. And I think it's one of the reasons why it works because it's a different situation when you've got two people on call or you can vent to your spouse in a way about the day-to-day issues that we can't in the same way because our husbands don't do the same job that we do.
0: Do you know of similar groups?
5: I don't, I,
3: I don't think that we do. I, we know lots of people, for instance, within this organization who know each other and have the same experience we have when we come to the conference of meeting again with friends and bonding and ongoing relationship. I don't know if we know anyone where it's as close as Oh, maybe she knows, as we are. Um, in that sort of in how it it carries through, and interestingly, at the workshop that we led at this conference, um, when the when we had this sort of conversation with the participants, you know, why did you come to this workshop? What were you hoping to get out of it? Where are you at in this pathway of identifying a network, what you need out of a network, and finding it? Almost everyone that was there felt they needed a network. They felt what gaps they had in their lives that a network could fill. They could identify the type of people they needed to fill those gaps, but they weren't sure where and how to find them and make the connection. That, I think, is definitely the part of the pathway that's weakest, and we just got lucky. Yeah, that's that is
2: right. Our evolution was very... Fortuitous and serendipitous, that's a very good word. We didn't plan this at all. I, I think it could be planned, though. Um, I, when we became friends, I was living in a city. And working rurally as a locum and running a rural training program at the same time and being in the city actually was very good for that because I could sit at tables with the urban you know academics who were making decisions and and help advocate for the rural part of our program Um, but one of the things that I learned while I was there and partly because of my experience with with my group of friends um was that there was a young academic who I felt was a little bit isolated and she Whenever I ran into her, she, she needed to talk a lot about things, that I, and, I, and I saw a gap for her. So I said to her, why don't we have Fridays at the tavern? And uh, we decided to just invite everybody for a cocktail after work at the local. It's a, it's a really nice restaurant that's also a ta- called a tavern. Um, and we invited four or five other women, all in different decades of practice and age, and they all came. And within probably two or three of those nights, every one of those women identified that this was something missing in her life. They're all busy, busy people. I was very surprised. And I, I didn't know that they needed it. I knew that this particular young a- academic might need it. And they're a great group now. They travel together. They just went to New York last fall. I went with them. Um, and so that was really exciting for me. And I guess it probably demonstrates for us that we could maybe even create these groups through matchmaking.
5: Mm. (laughs) Is this the group that you cheat on
4: us with? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I've always had Big groups of women friends, right? From high school, I'm still friends with a with a group of girls from high school. When I was in university and medical school, we had a group of, of close women friends. And when I moved to a small town, they, they tried to create that group and found it extremely difficult. I found um, I was the first woman physician to come to the town. I found that people were reluctant actually to befriend me. I didn't have a good, I didn't have a good social experience in this small town, and I missed that that female companionship okay. so much. So when, when now with that I have these uh, three other women, this is really feels such a big hole that I was missing in my life, and that was partly because I moved to a rural community and couldn't find, I wouldn't say like-minded. There was lots of like-minded people there, I think, but they were, were reluctant. There was barriers for the, for friendships in a small town when you're a physician in a small town. So this group is, is um, I think, works well because we're in different places. Um, and for a number of reasons had maybe had trouble finding like-minded friends and people to, to uh, befriend us. Yeah. It can be really challenging be
5: working in a small town, especially the, the small the smaller the more challenging it can be because you're supposed to have boundaries between doctor and patient and it's very difficult when your lives intersect in ways other than doctor and patient. I mean I, I can't not befriend everyone that I might come in contact with, especially if you count all the people that I deliver babies for, I work in the emergency room, like I would not be able to be friends with anyone in town. Now, I have occasionally found other doctors for a couple people in my practice who ended up being my friends, but it was through connections other than our doctor-patient relationship that that happened. But it it does make it awkward because in some places you might be the newcomer, And in a place that has, you know, had the same medical staff for generations, or just is a place where people have been there a very long time, sometimes they're not as welcoming to new people. And sometimes they're tremendously welcoming to new people, but you just don't feel comfortable necessarily being at, uh, I've been at parties where I've known he's having an affair with her, and neither (laughs) of them know it, and, and it's very awkward sometimes. So... There's none of that awkwardness here. And because they also understand the confidentiality of what we do, it's very much like a, like we would do in a corridor consultation that has traditionally happened. You know, it's always happened that if you were in a small town and you or having uh, a difficult case or a difficult uh, situation that you would ask a colleague for advice. Well, this is asking a colleague for advice as well. They're just three of the smartest, wisest people I know, and so I always know the advice they give me is going to be
1: excellent
3: another great example of how finding network, when you're the physician, how it creates awkwardness in in finding at-home network. I had my first child in the rural community that I worked in, delivered her in the hospital that I attended births in. It was a wonderful experience. Joined the new moms group in town because I was a new mom, and I needed new moms and support and all of that that learning. And at the first session, what we talked about was, tell us about your birth experience. Well, I knew not only my birth experience, but the birth experience of half of the other <laughs> women and babies in the rooms because I had delivered those babies just before going on mat leave so when one of the women is asked words of wisdom what did you say that was wise during your birth she said nothing and I could say three things she said <laughs> so there are lots of those blurred boundaries where I couldn't be myself in that group because I knew I was going to be continuing to see those women and their babies when my mat leave was over
0: That must be so hard because your other lives intersect in many different ways in those communities right? Yeah
3: yeah. And it's part of why rural doctors need support from other rural doctors in ways. And I suspect it's true rural accountants and certainly rural lawyers or other people who deal with areas that are really sort of personal and confidential is that you sometimes don't ever stop getting to be the doctor. And it's part of why our relationship works so well, because while we are doctors with each other, we stop being doctors with each other a lot of the time, too.
2: Peer support and peer mentorship is such an important issue that if you open up the Rural roadmap, which you probably saw earlier this week, um, published by the Society of Rural Physicians and the College of Family Physicians as a collaboration... Uh, Point number 15 in that document is about rural mentorship and the importance of uh, rural physicians not being isolated educationally, socially, personally. Um, We know that that isolation can lead to things like lack of retention of an excellent rural physician. That's a big concern for all of us. Once we get a good rural colleague, we want to keep that person. So, you know, what are the things that keep those people happy? Well, yes, you want a a lively practice life and an, an enjoyable community life, but you also need a pillow there for when you crash. And um, I think that um, while there may be private ways to, and I think all physicians need that, um, but while those things are a little bit more accessible to urban physicians, to those of us in rural could easily get forgotten. Physicians are very stoic. We've been trained to put our needs behind the need of the patient. And we sometimes then completely forget what our needs are, or we may not even be able to identify them. And I think one of the things that, that we get is sometimes just in the in the tone of a text or or the the different uh, emoticons that have been used you know that somebody's kind of struggling and and needs a couple days off and we'll say that to each other you need a sick day like do not go to the office like that you know it's rare that that would happen but that kind of support is i think vital for every physician and how you build that that's the next piece
0: you mentioned
3: I was gonna say, I could talk about this all day, but I actually have to give a presentation, five minutes, so I'm going to run, but thank you. Okay, thank
0: you. Uh, Can I ask one more question? Yeah, we're not presenting this one, so we're good. Okay. Uh, Kate, right? Um, She mentioned that when you did the workshop, people could identify different needs that they had. What were some of those needs?
2: So the, the one at my table that um, struck me the most was a gentleman that identified a physician that identified in his community that um, for the new physicians, they are challenged sometimes with very difficult cases, sometimes with bad outcomes very early on in their practice in those communities, and he wanted to create a group that was there automatically for those uh, those doctors so that they didn't have to ask for help, the support was already there. Marilee can probably, can you beef that up a little bit, do you remember yeah. that guy? Yeah. He, he was talking specifically
5: about um, cases that had, had bad outcomes you know the motor vehicle crash where someone died the pediatric resuscitation where a child died an obstetrical disaster um, and often these aren't even situations where the physician could have done anything they're often situations that are just irretrievable but we are trained to continue to function and continue to to work you know i I think of the physicians in in Tisdale and the Saskatchewan who, and Melfort who had to in Nipawin who had to deal with that horrendous bus crash with mass casualties, which would have overwhelmed their emergency rooms. But they couldn't close the emergency room because they were they had just dealt with this horrible disaster. They had somebody had to keep on call and somebody had to keep seeing patients despite having done that horrible shift. And if you don't have Excellent collegial support. It's after those sorts of disasters that will change practice or change what someone does. You know, it certainly happened in my community that um, one of my obstetrical colleagues had had a bad obstetrical outcome, which was honestly had nothing to do with her care. She's an excellent physician, but it scarred her so much that she left obstetrics. So she no longer delivers babies, and that can happen very frequently because of the nature of our work bad things happen to people and we care about our patients so it hurts patients and their families but it hurts us too and we carry that with us
4: there are a lot of people who talk about the high risk of burnout like the amount of depression in in our in our younger physicians and our learners is something like 50 percent I think I'm you know I don't know exactly the data and you guys can can correct me if I'm wrong but Physicians will suicide four times higher than the than the average. Um, so there's there's a high incidence of suicide. I'm sure there's all kinds of PTSD. And there's a really low availability of help for, because they're still stigmatized. To have mental health problems is still very much stigmatized. If you admit to your colleagues that you're struggling, it, they actually pull back and they actually start to resent you because if you're having problems and don't think that you can work as hard as you have, what you're doing is you're asking your colleagues to pick up more work because you can't do it, and everyone's just on the edge of being able to cope with what we do um, in as a rural generalist. So to to show any kind of weakness is
2: actually a really really big problem in small medical communities. And I will add a little case study to kind of paint a picture for why we've we've become this way, and hopefully the newer generations of doctors are not this way, but. When I was a resident, I was the code captain in my hospital, and we had um, a woman come in who had an intrauterine fetal death, and um, the, uh, during the process of, of her giving birth to that baby that had passed, she um, seized and essentially coded in front of us, and we had to run an obstetrical code on this patient who was still pregnant with a dead baby, um, and she died. And, <clears throat> and I was the code captain, and I was, I don't know, 24 years old, 26 years old, um, with my own little guy at home. And um, while I was running that code, 11 admissions were building up down in the emergency room. And I couldn't stop thinking about the code. I sat and I did all my documentation I don't think my preceptor came and went over the documentation with me or asked me how I was. And I was walking through the ICU about 20 minutes later and the ICU nurse stopped me and she said, I heard what happened on, on the maternity unit. And she said, ah, that's too bad. And I, I, I think I, I may have started to cry or I looked like I was starting to cry. And she said, you're going to have to toughen up, girl. That was a response. And that was the support I got that day. So, you know, I know I had, a, I had some residents support me and I did ultimately just go home. I did not do any of those admissions. I called my preceptor and I said, I do not think I'm, I feel safe to continue taking care of people right now. Um, and it was f- close enough into the afternoon that he sent me home. I don't know who did the admissions. I still feel guilty about the admissions, but I'm really glad that I didn't try to take care of somebody really sick after that because I don't think I would have been safe. And that's our worry about some of our colleagues in isolated communities who are who are forced to carry on without without any level of support. And you know, you can park your emotion for a while and I'm certainly better at that now than I would have been as a resident. But but that emotion can't stay parked forever because it's gonna come back to bite if you don't deal with it on some level and, and the things we if, if something like that upset me. There were, there were hordes of nurses that were affected by it. So were other residents, and there should have been a, a systems level debrief and an offer of support to all of us. And I, today I think that would be here. But I think that explains why a lot of us in my generation of, of practice, I'm 25 years in practice now, um, our inclination would be less to seek support and, and hopefully the younger docs have a better understanding of how important it is to ask for help
5: to be fair though i think in really high functioning groups th- there's a lot of that support built in yes. i remember having my first pediatric death a year or two into my um, into my starting in port perry and i was absolutely devastated this was a child that came in without vital signs that i just wasn't able to resuscitate but happened to be connected yeah. with the hospital the, the parent with the hospital employee so I, I by arm's length i knew this child And they had brought their other children to the emergency room at 3 in the morning, so I had to tell the parents and a 5-year-old and a 3-year-old that their 7-year-old sibling had died. It was just terrible. And so I canceled my office the next day. I went home and cried in my husband's arms, and I had several colleagues who checked in. And I now, it's sort of a policy. If someone had a bad case, we have a way of, of... texting each other and saying can you come in because somebody just had a bad case and they deserve to go home and as much as possible we try to do so it's a lot harder the smaller the community the smaller the the group and the tighter the circumstances the harder it is to do that because maybe you have to work the next 24-hour shift so you really can't work 36 hours straight at least not with any safety
0: i have one more question and so just maybe we end on that more okay. positive okay.
4: note. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really this is all stories. about fun. Okay, yeah. yeah. let's talk about the good uh, stuff.
0: You yeah. you talked about your partners, your husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you kind of now brought your families together. So how does that work? Well, we
5: generally get together at one of our homes. Um, we got together at my place yeah, once. My place. i Lane's yeah, yeah. right. We went to New Year's Eve at your place. Um, yeah. I, I think the the husbands like to spend some time with us because they hear so many stories back and forth so it's like filling in those (laughs) gaps Um, I think our kids kind of get each other although Kate and I have kids who are about the same age they're sort of early teenagers and your kids are in their in their 20s so we've never had an event where we had all of the children together but uh, I, I think our husbands recognize how important this group is to us and how much um, pleasure and joy and support it brings to us so I, I joke that this group makes me a much better husband a uh, much better spouse rather to my husband because I can vent to them instead of to him which is sometimes a very good thing they're my sounding board
0: what's your advice to family physicians who you know need this kind of stuff uh,
2: my advice would be to think a little bit about the maybe the 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 networks you have already that might serve this kind of purpose, and whether you just need to uh, add some more fun, um, add some more opportunities for camaraderie. Uh, Maybe you get together once a year at a conference and you really like these two or three people that you know through the conference. We'll create a little text group so that you can text each other as a group and stay in touch a little bit more closely in between conferences. Think a little bit about how big your group should be depending on what your goals are. Maybe your goals are some sort of advocacy or uh, maybe it's not um, like a, a... sort of a peer support which is what ours really is um, but if what you want is peer support then you probably need some face-to-face gatherings and trying to find a way to do that at least once a year would be strongly advised if not more often. And I would say make sure you have a team shirt and drink champagne. Yes you can never drink too much champagne no. at least if you're not on call. Or at least not all at once. <laughs>
5: Got, it got a lot heavier than I thought it was going to I'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> no, That's okay. No, that's
2: nature of the beast yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's part of the it's, reason. it is part of our job but... I actually think and the one thing that I didn't mention while we were talking about it is that let's say I had that same case today which I wouldn't because we don't have maternity in our hospital but um, let's say I had that same case that I had as a, had as a resident and, and that we had the same outcome which I think was probably inevitable in, in her situation unfortunately um, I think that these ladies would get me through it and i think that my community would be able to retain me as a family physician um you know i've got other supports as well i'm very fortunate to have a a very supportive husband who thinks that what i do is awesome i think that's very important if your husband doesn't or your spouse doesn't think that your work is important that would be really difficult as a family physician or as a physician in general um but I, i still think that these are the ladies who would get what had happened would find a way to understand the facts so that they could say yeah I agree you could learn this and this from that but I don't agree that you could have changed the outcome and I would believe them and a a counselor or someone else who might be from the outside of medicine and not be able to completely understand the context or the or the or the clinical context might it might be harder for them to reassure me and for me to feel that that was accurate.
4: I I think being able to bounce things off of of these women every day if we're having a bad day or having problems with the kid or with a spouse has made me a better physician, a better spouse and a better mom because rather than reacting to something that they're doing, I can get a leveled response from my friends and be able to rethink and re you know, reevaluate what my response would be and make a much measure, more measured, pleasant response when I'm angry. So I find that's very helpful. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Everyone should have someone to vent text to on yes, a regular that's right. basis. I think anyone who knows us has occasionally seen us with our cell phone, tears rolling down our eyes, laughing. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you,
2: that was fun.
1: Wow. So there's lots to talk about there. Really powerful stories. And I think it kind of opened up my eyes. When you're seeking medical care, you might be feeling sick, you might be feeling scared, you might be feeling worried, and you're very rarely thinking about, uh, you know, what did this physician experience in the last, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, So it's a really different perspective. And also hearing that there are some of those issues that, you know, any physician would experience, but that are just so exacerbated by being in a rural community.
0: You're right. When you go to a hospital, when you go to a doctor, you never think about who was there before you.
1: You're thinking about your experience, experience, which is fair. But uh, someone's got to be, someone's got to (laughs) consider the (laughs) other side of that relationship.
0: And it's interesting that they had to create this support group for themselves. Yeah, yeah. We actually don't, through the health system, we actually don't think about Mm -hmm. those kinds of supports. Yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of other professions.
1: There's a degree to which we see doctors as sort of uh, superhero types. You know, I mean, the fact is they experience health issues, physical and mental as well.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that situation is similar for emergency workers. Yeah. Both like firefighters, yeah. um, police, yeah. right, EMS. Yeah. Um, I love that they met at a curling speed.
1: Me too. I mean, uh, we, hopefully hopefully everyone's heard the episode we did earlier this season about the value of curling clubs in rural places, and I think this underscores that.
0: I take that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the end of another episode. Uh, we heard from Elaine Blau, Mary Lee Brown, Rochelle Dworkin, and Kate Miller. They're all family physicians and generalists working in rural Ontario.
1: Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is a little taste of uh, sort of like a mini theme that we're planning for season three. We're going to spend some time talking about rural health and rural medicine from a broad perspective. We'll definitely look deeper into the rural roadmap, which is that Canadian uh, policy document that you mentioned earlier.
0: And it's that rural roadmap is really interesting because it's very broad and it's very comprehensive. So it doesn't just talk about practice, but it talks about recruitment and retention right. and education. So it's yeah. going to be an interesting episode. Yeah. We're also going to have an episode about indigenous health issues and practices.
1: Uh, And you mentioned also, and this is something that we were really interested in, the business of having babies in rural and remote places. We've heard some stories, especially related to um, obstetrics in the North, for example, people having to fly to give birth. There's a lot of really interesting stuff to look at there, and also something that I think maybe people don't consider the the availability of like palliative end of life kind of care in rural places. And how does how do how does that final stage of life both for the individual who's actually um, passing away but also for the family and the community, how does that um, how does that play out in, in rural places across Canada? So
0: lots to come on. In yeah, and
1: I, I also think <laughs> it's not going to just be that.
0: Oh, my goodness, no. In uh, season three, we are going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. We have uh, lots
1: of good ideas. We're going to yes. go to the coast.
0: We are going to go to the coast. We're going to talk about fisheries. We're going to talk about small islands. The in traditional rural
1: yeah. High-tech, unexpected stuff.
0: High-tech, unexpected stuff. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff coming up. As always, Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Center here at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership.
4: We record our
1: show at CHMR Campus Radio in St. John's.
0: And you can hear Rural Roots through our website at Rural Roots Podcasts.com. That's Rural R O U T E S Podcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite Podcasting.
1: you can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country if you'd like your station to carry rural roots just let them know and they can find us on the campus and community radio program exchange or they can get in touch with us directly
0: so that's the end of another episode i'm born first
1: and i'm rebecca gaho thanks so much for listening